Matinees on Main Street. This is a podcast of the movies told from the beginning. My name is Alan. A few episodes back, I talked about wondering what the public was thinking concerning the movies in their first few years. And while I mentioned that the public was generally enthusiastic about the early films, they also had a decided preference for certain types of film clips, especially for the actualities. I think that in another one of the episodes, I kind of compared early filmmaking to getting your first smartphone. What you did with that phone, or at least with its movie filming capabilities, would have been a lot similar to what the early cameramen were thinking when they found themselves making movies. Probably with your first phone, besides making phone calls and looking things up, you took lots of photos of your friends and maybe the places you visited. And if you use the movie features at all, it was to do the same thing. This was the same mindset that the first cameramen found themselves in. The fact was that until George Melies came along, all of the cameramen were simply scientists and mechanics who found themselves in a position to where they had to make films in order to provide their projector-buying customers with new material. These men had little concern about what to film or even how to channel their creative impulses. Their interests were in making the machines, not in using them. So when someone like Laurie Dixon or William Heiss or even Robert Paul went out to make films, they simply repeated what the others did. They also looked at what was popular and took it from there. And what was popular were films now known as actualities. Actualities not only betrayed the limited interest that some of the cameramen had for movie making, it also betrays the audience's limited demands in what they watched on the screen. The word actuality comes from the French word actualité. The French named it because the French film historians were much more aware of early film history than the Americans were at that time. The word and its meaning also translates pretty easily into English. It's easy to think of an actuality as filming something that's actually happening. Why the public liked them so much is really hard to tell. Almost anyone who researches this subject carries their own historical and intellectual baggage with them, and they tend to impose later viewpoints on it. I know I do. I think they can seem a little boring unless you're seeking out the history in sight of some of the footage of downtown New York City or London shot in 1896, or you're struggling to understand the attitudes in America of that time through those clips. In a way, it's hard to understand why people like such simple things as watching waves crash against a pier or traffic traveling along London's strand. But while they didn't have the historical viewpoint that we have, we don't have their contemporary view. So there's probably a lot that's missing between us and them. Personally, 
I think they had no expectations of the movies. To use one of our sayings to them, it is what it is. And I mean that in a positive way rather than in a rather cynical way that we use the phrase. I've mentioned that there were certain expectations placed on certain inventions, a kind of subconscious wish among the public. For example, there were people with a kind of expectation about the creation of a machine that could replace the horse, or one that would allow us to travel in the air. When the first cars appeared, they were really noisy exhaust machines, but we knew that they would get better. The first airplanes seemed like flimsy gossamer floating in the air, but they would soon be carrying passengers a long distance. Novelty seems to give us a sense of patience towards the new, a feeling that we don't have for things that we're quite familiar with. Think about how patient we were about downloads and uploads when the Internet was so much slower 20 years ago. In other words, the movies were a novelty, and we had yet to place any expectations on it. It had not yet showed us its limits, nor did it show us all its possibilities. It entertained us as much as we wanted it to. We didn't need it to provide us with stories or art. Our great-great-grandparents just sat in the vaudeville houses and enjoyed them for what they were. What they were was of a documentary nature. Absolutely no attempt was made to provide anything in the way of storytelling or even highlighting the climax of some popular novel. So the making of these movie shorts was left in the hands of men who were more interested in working at their developer's bench than propping up some camera making movies. And what we got were actualities. If the limited creativity of these cameramen had disappointed the public, the moving picture craze would have died with a whimper. Instead, the public was quite happy just to sit and watch as a string of minute-long shorts showed them fire departments, city streets, war footage, vaudeville dancers, amusement park rides, scenic wonders, farmers at work, and any other aspect of life at that time. So who were making the first collections of early movies? In America, it will soon become obvious over the coming episodes that the man who held all the winning cards was Thomas Edison. You could also extend that further to William Gilmore, the man who was responsible for the manufacturing of Edison's movie machines, as well as the making of the movies themselves. He was of the mind that as Edison held a number of patents, he could use those patents to control the industry. At this time, Edison was not that deeply involved with the project, so it took occasional mentions from Gilmore to Edison to motivate the mechanical genius to act in an authoritative way. To be fair to Gilmore, he was acting in Edison's best interest, and it really wouldn't take much to get him to respond, as Edison had already acted in this fashion concerning the electric light bulb and the phonograph. What this all means is that, in the end, any real attempts to make movies in America would soon have to be done with Edison's approval and even his cooperation. Otherwise, it would have to be done surreptitiously, 
with movies being made and sold in places where Edison's power didn't have such a great reach. His power first came down upon the people making the Passion Play films. That included both the Eden Musée version and the earlier Claw and Erlanger version. If you remember, the Eden Musée version was advertised as having been made at Oberammergau in Austria, although it had really been made on the roof of the Grand Central Building in New York City. By mid-1898, the ads were still referring to it as an Oberammergau film, but more and more it was also being mentioned as an Edison film. Thomas Edison and the Edison Company made projectors, but did not manufacture movie cameras, although it did hold patents on certain important features of the camera. Any cameras that had been made by the Edison Company had been for company use only. This meant that anyone who was making a movie in America at that time had one of two choices. Either they illegally made a camera using ideas that Edison had patented, or they had to come up with a new way of filming. Even the Lumiere camera was under suspicion by Edison's lawyers. Technically, this made it very difficult to make movies in America, and it would seem to force the growing number of exhibitors to find very secretive or rebellious ways to make movies. Some small groups just willingly manufactured films until the Edison people shut them down, leaving these small-time investors happy to have made the money that they did and willing to move on to other things. Others would prove to be not so easily placated and would eventually turn their frustrations into a popular revolt. Edison's main cameramen at the time were James White and William Heiss. Now, Edison's manufacturing company tends to have a reputation for underproducing films, but in IMDb's rough list of the Edison films for 1897, a little under 150 films were made. Now, when it comes to the early years of film, there is some mistrust in IMDb's information, but Edison's movies are pretty well documented, unlike some of the other early film companies. While Edison's most popular films in 1898 would be the Spanish-American War films, in 1897 the actualities were much more varied. One of the company's major efforts was making train films. As was usual with Edison, this project was done with the cooperation of other companies, in this case the railroad companies. Thanks to the Lehigh Valley Railroad, James White and his fellow cameraman, Frederick Blackenden, traveled west to Buffalo, where they filmed Niagara Falls, and later filmed the railroad company's most important line, the Black Diamond Express, as track men worked on the rail line while the train approached and passed by. But the Lumieres had shown that you could travel the world and make actualities. The public loved to see these exotic locations in foreign cultures. Even still photographs of these subjects interested the public. The period of the movie's birth was also the time when National Geographic magazine first appeared. The democratic peoples of North America and Western Europe were enthralled by the subject of foreign lands. The Edison Company found itself in a position where it needed to respond to the success of the Lumiere World Cinema movies, 
and hatched an idea of its own. It's not known who thought it up, whether it was White or Heiss or even Blackenden. It could have been Gilmore or Edison himself. And from what I know about Edison, the idea may have even come from one of his customers. Edison cameramen would go out west to make railroad films, with part of the expense covered by the railroads. High on that list of railroad companies was the Southern Pacific. It's even possible it was the only one involved. If you remember back to the Edward Mybridge episodes, you'll know that his work creating images of horses in the various stages of running was done with the support of California Governor Leland Stanford. Stanford was a major collector of racehorses, but he was also one of the four men who organized the Central Pacific Railroad, which connected the West Coast to the rest of the United States. And another thing you might remember is that the four men who established that railroad company also set out to monopolize the transportation systems of the West Coast. This monopoly was incorporated under the name of the Southern Pacific, with the four men using the Southern Pacific to run their former corporation, the Central Pacific. The four men, while semi-retired, now control the entire West Coast rail system. In his cinematic scheme, Edison would send his cameramen to do cinematically what Moybridge had done photographically after his murder trial. The Edison men would capture moving images of California, the West Coast, the West, and Mexico. This would conveniently happen during California's first great celebration, the Golden Jubilee and Mining Fair of 1898. It would also feature a number of towns, peoples, and sites that could be conveniently visited using the various railroads of the Southern Pacific. The idea was to send a few of Edison's men on this mission to make promotional actualities of the West Coast. The two men that Edison and Gilmore would send were James White and Fred Blackenden. White was a Canadian who linked up with the Holland brothers when they were first involved with Edison's phonograph parlors. When the Hollands worked with Raff and Gammon as part of the Kinetoscope Company, White came with them to help set up the world's first kinetoscope parlor. He continued to work with Raff and Gammon in New York. After William Laurie Dixon quit the Edison Company, and Raff and Gammon went together with Edison to build a marketable projector, it was White, along with Thomas Armat, who would handle the projector in exhibitions. When Raff and Gammon separated from Edison and became the company's projection expert. So in 1897, he was taking the Edison moving picture camera on the road. Because Edison needed someone to stay at the lab rather than sending the more experienced William Heiss along with White, the much less experienced Fred Blackenden went along. The two left on their trip in the early summer of 1897, six months before the California Fair opened. This would give White and Blackenden the opportunity to travel the West making films. They set up their base in San Francisco, where the fair would soon open, and worked from there. Once they started working, their first focus was upon San Francisco's shipping industry. After all, the owners of the Southern Pacific also owned shipping lines. 
White, and Blackenden shot a good amount of moving image footage about the various ships, shipbuilding companies, oceanside tourism sites such as Fisherman's Wharf and the Sutro Baths, which was a well-known oceanside bathing facilities at the time. Eventually, they started to use some of the Southern Pacific's branch lines to send White and Blackenden to various places such as Seattle, Yellowstone, San Diego, and even visits to the Native American reservations. They filmed the Utes and the Pueblos, Mexicans and Los Angelinos. They filmed a few performances of the Leander Sisters, a local high-kick dancing duo, when they performed at the Sutro Baths. They filmed quite a number of ships docked in the harbor and even stopped to film Stanford University, which the former governor had named after his late son. They filmed horse-drawn coaches passing in front of the Hotel Vendome in San Jose, and even more horse coaches passing in front of the Hotel Del Monte in Monterey. They filmed horse-drawn traffic on Spring Street in downtown Los Angeles, which coincidentally would have been somewhere near Tally's phonograph and movie parlor. There were ostrich races in San Diego which they filmed, and the feeding of seagulls in San Francisco. They spent some time in Mexico filming street scenes and filmed some Native American dances in Arizona. Eventually, January of 1898 arrived, and they filmed the parades connected with the opening of the Golden Jubilee, including a few of the parade groups, including the Chinese procession. There were a number of railroad films, including the Mount Tamalas tourist train and another tourist train leaving Mount Livingston. There was footage of the California Limited, a train line run by the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe that used the Southern Pacific lines to reach San Francisco. Another treat, courtesy of the AT and SF, was a view of the Royal Gorge in Colorado. I count 75 films from this project, but there may easily have been more. And afterwards, White and Blackenden traveled across the Pacific, making more actualities. But then war broke out against Spain in early 1898, and White and Blackenden were called back. White was sent to Cuba to film the war, and this probably meant that Blackenden developed a good amount of the newer films. Some of the films had been developed earlier, and the rest were developed and released sometime in 1898. Some of the films were bundled into a package promoted with the Southern Pacific's name on it. Some of the films may even have been used by the company. Many of these films may have simply been used by travel lecturers like Burton Holmes. Otherwise, these films were primarily meant to be sold individually, with the exhibitors showing them in whatever order they chose. Besides this great trip to the West Coast, Edison had other actualities. These included shorts concerning the American battleships and cruisers that were docked in New York's harbors during the months preceding the Spanish-American War. And, of course, there were the non-actualities of Edison's from this period. There were a very short series of films that the Edison Company made about pillow fights. They were made by William Heiss just before the time that White and Blackenden were about to take off for the West. 
The first film, titled Seminary Girls, shows five or six young girls, maybe 14 or 15 or so, starting to engage in a pillow fight until the floor warden appears to stop them. After all, young ladies should not be engaging in this kind of behavior. It seems that a month later, Heiss again filmed a pillow fight, this time with girls who were a little younger. This fight accomplished its goal of causing the feathers to fly. Both of these films were quite successful, especially the second one, known as Pillow Fight. There was a playful charm to the second one that people loved. Both films showed the continuing influence of Lumiere's La Rosière Arroz, which was the sprinkler sprinkled in English, or more often the bad boy in the gardener. The last title, The Bad Boy and the Gardener, was actually a knockoff of the Lumiere film by the Edison people. And as the Edison company slowly moved to control the U.S. market, and as the Lumiere film needed people who could run the Lumiere projector to show it, The Bad Boy and the Gardener became the more popular film by the end of 1897. La Rosière Rose is the first comedy film and is considered by some to be the first narrative. In a way, comedy doesn't need a story, but then that may be why someone like myself doesn't tell jokes very well. Well, my brother does. There isn't much narration to a joke, but sometimes there is just enough for it to be very important. After the Bad Boy film, Edison Manufacturing started to make a series of comedy shorts with different degrees of success. The first was a bad boy pushing a fisherman into the water, which seemed more mean than funny. This was followed by a few other fisherman comedies. Then Edison or Heiss or Gilmore decided it was time to give young ladies a treat with a pillow fight, and those films would be popular over the next few years. By 1898, Edison was the dominant filmmaker in America, and for the most part, the public was perfectly happy with the Edison films. The only major complaint was that those who saw the biograph machine believed that it was showing a better picture. Still, the company behind the machines, American Mutograph and Biograph, made very few movies. At this time, they were still offering the camera, the projection, and the films as an exhibition package. That meant a projector along with a cameraman and a set of films. The image doubled the size of an Edison image, both lengthwise and in height. Clarity was impressive. Biograph also didn't have much in the way of joke films. In fact, their output in 1898 seems to have been less than a dozen. But it did provide one of the most important films of the year outside of the war pictures. This was a series of shorts featuring Pope Leo XIII. Apparently, Americans were not the only ones impressed with the Biograph projector. Mutoscope had established an office in England, so their two machines, the Mutoscope and the Biograph, were occasionally found in Europe. Among the people who saw it were the advisors to the Pope. What impressed them were the President William McKinley films, which included his stately walk during his campaign and his inauguration clips. While some people didn't think McKinley was exceptionally bright or clever, he did have a stately manner that made him impressive on film. For many, 
looking presidential was an important aspect of the job. The Pope's advisors wanted to bring that kind of public relations success to the pontiff. He was a very intelligent and savvy political figure, and he hoped that moving images would help bring his message to the American Catholics. At the time, Dixon was running British Mutoscope, and he spent over four months negotiating and arranging for the filming of the pontiff. The man who ran the camera was Emile Laust. Emile's father, Eugene, had worked with Dixon on Edison's kinetoscope and later worked with the Lathams. Now his son, Emile, was operating a movie camera, and he and Dixon met with the Pope. Among the film clips, the Pope was shown meeting with some of his officials, as well as being carried in his sedan chair. What mattered most to both the Pope and Dixon was filming him as he blessed the camera, which in turn suggested that he was blessing America's Catholics, or maybe the entire country. In cities where there was a significant Catholic population, such as Chicago or New Orleans or San Francisco, these films made a tremendous impact upon the public and really bolstered the Biograph camera's reputation. S. Lubin, the film company in Philadelphia, was the opposite of the Mutoscope Biograph Company. It was much more prolific, but it had the reputation of being a pirate film company. Because so many films are now gone, it's hard to tell the difference between what Lubin truly created on his own and what it made through inspiration, what it copied outright, and what it simply duplicated. Over time, it would develop an honest reputation, but in the days before the Nickelodeon, Rubin's reputation was built upon making fake fight films based on details from various championship bouts. Lubin seemed to have an eye for comedy films, although he also duplicated Melies's early films. In early 1898, Melies's films were just starting to be imported, and Lubin was the first to notice their unique style. As for actualities, Zygmunt Lubin was very influenced by the Edison actualities, so there was a lot of local urban imagery. It's fair to say that anything filmed in Philadelphia was probably an original Lubin, while anything that Lubin distributed that was New York-themed was probably a dupe of an Edison film. As White and Heiss also spent time filming Coney Island for Edison, Lubin traveled to the southern Jersey Shore to film that state's tourist traps that were marketed to Philadelphians. This included the Atlantic City Boardwalk and the beaches near Wildwood. The descriptions of some of Lubin's comedies seem to suggest that those films were rather innovative, while others of his comedies seem to be influenced by other works. On the other hand, many of his actualities seem like a repetition of Edison and Lumiere ideas, street scenes, train scenes, tourist scenes, occasional landscapes, and the like. Once Edison would start turning their legal guns on their competitors, Lubin would skip off for Europe. Over in Chicago, Edward Amet and George Spoor were just getting started, so their output was extremely limited. In 1898, they recreated a few battle scenes of the Spanish-American War, which were distributed primarily in the Midwest and the West. 
This time, the Spoor started to travel as an exhibitor in order to show these films to the public. Then there's the Vitagraph Company, which I'll discuss in the next episode. The company was just starting up in 1898, and like Amit and Spoor, these two vaudeville performers, Albert Smith and J. Stuart Blackton, recreated a naval battle for the camera. Audiences were rather impressed by the work of both groups, and it's not known whether the public was aware that these were both recreations. Finally, there's the imports. At this time, the Lumieres still had cinematographers out in the field, but their numbers were shrinking. In 1897, there were well over 50 geographical documentaries released by the company, but in 1898, that number fell drastically to 17. There doesn't seem to be any suggestion that Louis Lumiere was making films after his initial burst of activity in 1896. Almost everything was shot in some foreign country, with a small number being shot back home in Paris. The one exception that I can see is a pillow fight film. IMDB listed as number two. Did the Lumieres make Pillow Fight number one? Or is this just a knockoff of Edison's second Pillow Fight film? I have no idea. As for Gamont and Milliez, both of them were just getting started. 1897 was Milliez's first big year in filmmaking. Still, he also made a number of documentary films. But closer inspection of the ones I could find show that at least some of them were staged, as would be some of his naval battle films in the Spanish-American War a year later. Obviously, Melies's love of stagecraft ran much deeper than simply making castles and haunted houses, as naval combat in Greece shows a fairly realistic set built to look like the deck of a naval cruiser, as it rocks back and forth while the camera sits still. A tip of the hat to Melies's set building. In the following year, Melies's output starts to drop which isn't surprising as he was starting to make longer and more complicated films. Gamont was just starting out in 1897 and released around 25 film shorts, while in 1898 that number is a little higher at around 44. It's not sure whether Ms. Alice Gee was making all of the films. She did suggest that the man who helped train her would soon leave Gamont for other things. Some people think she may have started making movies later than 1897, and that's possible, but regardless of whether it was 1897 or 1898, no one was making more comedies than she was. These comedies were not as rude or vulgar as were some of the Edison comedies. But this does mean that her output of actualities was rather small. She did film some location shots in Paris, and she also filmed some local stage stars, such as Louis Fuller and Blanche Cavalli. While both Milliez and Gamont were exporting their films to America, they were in small amounts at this time. If anyone was exporting to America in large numbers, it was Charles Urban. Urban was actually an American himself, having worked in the phonograph and kinetoscope business in both Detroit and New York City. 
Eventually, he worked for McGuire and Bacchus in London. And even before he changed their company's name to Warwick Trading, he was exporting a large amount of Robert Paul's films to America. Besides Paul's knockoffs of films like The Vanishing Lady or his very early crime films such as The Gamblers, Robbery, and Theft, he put out a large amount of actualities. Some of these were simply European travelogue footage, such as Scene on Douglas Beach, Traffic on Tower Bridge, Swedish National Dance. But he had two major collections, and one of them was a hit in America. The lesser-known group was a collection of films shot in Egypt, but it was his footage of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in which the country celebrated the 60th year of her reign that proved to be a truly astonishing achievement. The previous year, she had bested the reign of England's longest reigning monarch up to that time, King George III, the king of the American Revolution. On her golden anniversary, the country held a massive celebration. This was 10 years earlier in 1887. For the 1897 celebration, it was suggested that instead of celebrating monarchy, the Queen celebrate the empire. This meant inviting only the heads of state of the various British colonies, such as Australia, India, Canada, and everywhere else around the globe that was British. It also meant that the Queen didn't have to host European monarchs such as the ones in Russia or Germany or put up with democratic heads of state. It also meant that she didn't have to invite a long list of relatives to stay in the castles. What this did mean for the movie cameras was a long procession of armies and militias from foreign British colonies, all of which protected the empire. This was truly a display of why the sun never sat on the British Empire of that time. It seems that Robert Paul had a few cameras set up, as each in turn filmed a group in the procession before it stopped to change reels and another camera took its place. The British were agog over the ceremony and Paul did his best to promote the films, even selling some of them as a group. In America, these films were of greater importance to the travel lecturers than they were to the standard vaudeville movie projectionists. And Americans were not yet as impressed with British military might as they were with the film clips of the Pope. But soon, all of this would fade as America went to war with Spain. But first, I'll take a look at Albert Smith and J. Stuart Blackton as they start up Vitagraph, as well as their curious relationship with Thomas Edison. Thanks for listening. 